Oh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, thank you for joining us again for another episode of the Good Trouble Podcast. My name is Gregory Ball, and I have my compadre, my friend, my uh, comrade, my uh, brother at arms in this. Conspirator in chief. What'd you say? Co conspirator in chief. Yes, co conspirator in chief <laughs> in this information thing of ours. Um, Brother Reggie Williams, how are you doing, Reggie? I'm doing well, Greg. Happy Friday. It's good to be here. Yes, it is a good day. The sun is shining. And other reason it's a good day is we have a great guest with us today. Um, our guest is an author. He is a journalist. Um, he is a bit of a historian when it comes to the city of Boston. And um, somebody I'm, I'm proud to call a friend of mine and he has he has had an interesting journey within his career, and he is probably one of the the most fierce lovers of the city of Boston that I have ever met that you will ever meet in your life, ladies and gentlemen. Today, today our, our guest, guest is Dart Adams. What up, everybody? I'm good. And he's a man of few words, even though he writes books. Um, <laughs> So, so dark. You've been you've been doing uh, you've been writing for a long, long time. Like when let's before we get into the whole writing thing and kind of those that career stuff, um, yeah. let's talk about some of the 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 things that that kind of led you into the writing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, have have you always had a thing where you were connected and and had a way with words? Was it was it a fascination for you as a kid? Was like, where did your love affair with words start? Uh, as a child, all I cared about was words on screen and what could be done with them. And I didn't realize that there was this theme running along all the things I loved that had to do with words and communication and period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love music. Uh, growing up, I love music. I learned the lyrics to every song. Uh, I, part of the reason I'm convinced I learned how to read was so I could read album covers and liner notes and album credits. And the other reason I learned how to read is because my older brother and sister always had something that they were reading. They always were reading a school, a, a school book, a magazine, uh, um, a comic book, something. I learned to read over my big sister's shoulder. She read Right On Magazine. My big brother's shoulder as he read um, Marvel comic books as they read their school books because they both went to um, every school they went to, I went to. So they went to uh, the Quincy, they went to the Timothy, then they went to Boston Latin School. So I wanted to do the same thing. So I pretty much learned how to read from always being around people older than me and with them reading something. So I fell in love with the written word that way and like everything I loved as a kid growing up had to do with you know words whether it was uh, again reading a write-on or a black beat magazine whether it's reading a marvel comic book whether it's reading the liner notes uh, or the album credits of a, of a record that was playing uh vinyl uh and I didn't catch on until later and then when I got older I started like writing rhymes and I didn't realize for the longest, the only reason I really cared about like being in R&B groups or being down with a rap group is because people got to hear what I wrote. And 
Mm. It took me until I was probably 30 years old to realize that I wasn't pursuing anything other than, you know, communicating with people through the written word. Mm. So what, what was the part about that communication? Because, you know, was it a situation where you felt like you had something to say and you needed people to hear it? Like, yeah. what was that driving force that was kind of making you just keep coming back to words? And we and don't think we're going to just gloss over that, that the hip hop and R&B career. You don't think this is yeah. going to fly by. No, no, no. This is how I ended up here. Uh, well, when you're a little kid and you grow up in South End, Lower Roxbury, in Boston, especially back in the uh, late 70s through the early 80s, this is where, like, the Boston Funk All-Stars um, were concentrated. So Boston, the beauty of Boston being is that it's a small city. It's the size of Shaq's left shoe. Everybody knows everybody. There's no such degree of separation. It's like 1.5. Um, so... That meant that in my neighborhood, we had people like Prince Charles Alexander. That means that we had uh, of the um of the um of the city beat of the city beat band. Uh, that means that we had people directly connected to uh, both Michael Johnson and Maurice Starr. That means that we had people direct uh, connected directly to uh, Gordon Worthy. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, Wu. Uh, Wooing worthy, you know, um, mega bucks worthy, uh, uh, the other guys that were associated with Almighty RSO and by extension the Johnson crew. Um, Eric Murray who was also one of the Boston Funk All Stars. So, uh, there were so many people that were connected to us. New Edition, who incidentally I ran into because my cousin Baron was best friends with a kid named Ralph Tresvan, and I had family, uh, my cousins Baron and um. And their entire family and oh, I had so many family members that were in Orchard Park. So mm, okay. my big my big brother and big sister grew up with all the guys from New Edition. And I was the little kid who tagged along behind them. Okay. So when you're a kid and you're in that environment, and again, um in Boston, especially South Roxbury, uh the talent show circuit was we were as enthusiastic about that is I say, you know, uh, in Texas, they were about high school football, you know, and it was highly competitive and everybody was really good and people would be practicing nonstop. You couldn't go into a rec center, go to a park, go anywhere without seeing somebody rehearsing steps or, or harmonizing or something like that. It was almost like doo-wop our doo-wop resurgence only was with R&B. So you had a bunch of young people that knew about older R&B, you know, and emulating older soul groups. And this is kind of the, this kind of the uh, culture and the environment that I was in. Cause I was always around older people. My big brother's six years older than me. My older sister's eight years older. Upstairs from where I lived, there were these two guys, James and Derek, they were DJs and they were 10 and 12 years older than I was. So I was a four-year-old Prince fan. This is something that didn't exist. I was a rare commodity. I was. I was how did you, how did your mother let you listen to Prince at four? Well, you- one thing, my mom was my mom was busy, man. My mom had to work and do all this other stuff, and she didn't know what the kids were doing upstairs. And as far as she knew, was we were out of trouble because mm. the South End Lower Roxbury in 1978, 79, 80, we the best you could do was sit on the stoop, and you sit on the stoop, you're gonna see some stuff because this is when people. Mm-hmm. My neighborhood was dirt tag. 
I'm not talking dirty. Dirty. I'm talking rich. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, there was cracks in the street, uh, uh, heroin addicts, people just drunk on the corner. It was bad, bad. Mm-hmm. So, like, if we, I went anywhere, I had to go with my cousins or my big brother, my big sister, and I was always around older kids. So I tagged along with, uh, along with New Edition and a whole bunch of other cats my entire young life. I went with them when they went to Strawberries and Skippy Whites and all the record stores. I listened to the radio stations they listened to, watched the shows they watched. So that kind of made me who I am. Because again, when you're four, there's very little reason for you to know like uh, Patrice Russian backwards and forwards or Rick James records, you know? Like, wh- why would I be singing A Fool in the Street at three? Like, you know, like, explain <laughs> that to me, you know? Why would I be fascinated with arrangements and um, Commodore's records at three years old? And the reason is, is because the Commodore's were managed by a dude from Boston and um, Walter Orange had a son who was in Boston, who was one of my big brother's friends. So I thought it was normal that everybody had uh, Commodore's 1977 album early. You know, I didn't realize that that was something unique or that you would hear songs like uh, Pac-Man before it's Pac-Jam or um, records like that before they drop. You hear Space Cowboy like six months before everybody else hears Space Cowboy. That was my existence in Boston. And I thought that was normal, you know? And I didn't realize until later that the music that we knew was Boston funk or space funk, everybody else called electro. And that kind of uh, goes into why I'm the person I am today, because I realized all these things I experienced firsthand as a kid in Boston, and then saw them go out into the world and become something big, and we don't get the credit for it when I saw it happen. And that became increasingly frustrating for me. So it's kind of one of the niches that I fell into when I started writing about music. And that's really powerful, Dart, you know, thinking about the perception of Boston on the grand stage, you know, we're known for new edition and new kids on the block. But when we think about uh, how we're connecting back to that local story and what that actually means on the ground for us as people of color in Boston, as black people in Boston, it's definitely a tale of two cities. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the the growth of music and the growth of perception of the city uh, since that point, since your upbringing and what you're hopeful for in the coming years? Well, one of the things is that, again, when I grew up in my neighborhood, all I heard were stories about the glory and the greatness and all the contributions that Boston's Black music and Black culture made to the world. And it was concentrated right there in my neighborhood. And people would say, this used to be, you know, whatever place, this used to be this. All these were legendary jazz clubs and all these people played here. And I'm like, well, if that's the case, then how come I don't hear it anywhere else but here? If, if Sammy Davis Jr. grew up in my neighborhood, how come when I read about Sammy Davis Jr., they didn't mention his time in Boston? Like, how is that possible? If all these places are institutions of great music, of jazz, if Harlem musicians left Harlem because of the racist cabaret card laws and moved to the South End and Lower Roxbury and lived here, they got they took the train for Harlem, got off at Back Bay Station and lived here for years, opened up a, um, a jazz local, musicians local, and stayed here and like performed forever. Then how come 
when people talk about jazz, there isn't a section about Boston. Right. Like, how come nobody talks about that? And see, these are the things that I, you know, used to weigh on my mind as I got older and I would dig, dig, dig more and I would find jazz recordings and all these seminal jazz recordings were made in Boston area jazz clubs. And I'm like, okay, so if this record exists, then how come Boston one doesn't embrace it and celebrate it? And two, how come in the annals of black music, there isn't a whole bunch of uh, respect paid, a homage paid to Boston, even in like modern black music, the transition between art, rap, R&B, electro, freestyle, all that to high energy, whatever, Boston played a huge part in all of it. And when everybody gets their respect to their props or their, or their um, credit, Boston never gets it. And that's one of the things where I, I, I push back against. But as far as like going forward, I feel as though first we have to correct the record because it's the same premise of when we were kids, when we were uh, the age of Afrocentricity. If you don't feel that you have a foundation, if you don't feel that you've done this, we've existed, we've contributed to culture, and this is not an aberration, this isn't new, then how are we ever going to value ourselves and think that we can achieve? So I kind of took that same thought process and applied it to Boston and the arts, not just music, but culture, the arts. Like I live on Columbus Ave, directly across the street from me used to live a man named Alan Rohan Crite. Alan Rohan Crite, uh, he passed away in 2007. He was my neighbor. He was famous for being one of the foremost artists in North America. But what he was famous for was he was one of the most prominent people that depicted black life in inner city Boston throughout the 30s through the 50s and, and watercolor. And, his, and his, his, his paintings are in museums and, and houses all over the country, all over the nation and even internationally, right? He's, he's, he's renowned worldwide. And I think about if he didn't exist, you couldn't go back and find pictures of black folks existing, having fun, living everyday life in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s in Boston, because the people, generally, we don't exist. But he, existing and capturing these moments, makes all that, you know, false, instantly. Mm. Of course we did. Have you never seen this man's paintings? You know, they're hanging in they're hanging in institutions all over the world. Like they, they love him in France. They love him in Italy. You know, in, in Japan, people have his paintings. And these are and these are paintings of streets that sometimes exist and sometimes have been long erased, you know. But I can look at that painting and I know that street that I look up when I go to the um the library that no longer exists. Oh, this is what it looked like because that man painted it back in 1937. So, so you know what's interesting you you know you talk about a lot of the work that you do or that you're passionate about is that counter storytelling that counter narrative and how how important that is as particularly um in the work that you're doing around chronicling culture like why why is it um why is it that you or what is it about culture that you think um is so important 
in in the larger scheme of things. It, it feels like to me that that culture is is almost that that great validator. You know what I mean? So, uh, what do you what do you think in terms of why? How important is it that that cultural conversation is correct? You know, and you talked about you know fixing the record. Like, why is it that culture is so important? Well, because all right, for one thing, back in 1996, I leave Boston and I go to Morgan State University, which is an HBCU in in Baltimore, Maryland, and suddenly I'm on this campus with black folks from everywhere. I don't mean nationwide. I mean everywhere. There are people from internationally who came here because they wanted to be at a school where it was just their people, right? And so I get there and the very first thing I experience are people talking about where they're from. And when I say I'm from Boston, they look at me as if I'm a unicorn, you know, or if I'm a centaur, you know? like something that doesn't exist. And I'm like, the hell's the matter with y'all? And I immediately had to launch into this whole thing, almost re-educating and educating people on, you know, black people's existence in Boston since the 1630s. And how actually in reality, the very first sizable community of, of, of black folks that were free and had autonomy was in Boston, you know? And like in by the 1650s, you know, and when you deal with that, you realize, oh, wow, we're really up against it. Because when you think about the existence of black folks in America or culture, that's what you go by. Like Gary, Indiana, you know, uh, Detroit, Michigan, Newark, New Jersey, pick a borough in New York. Pretty much what you go by is who's from there, their contributions, and what they did in the world outside. In Chicago, Illinois, you know, New Orleans, Louisiana. And when you think about cities like that, you automatically attach it to what we as brown people or black folks did there. Mm -hmm. And if there's no record or history or culture that directly connects us to that place, then that place is almost like irrelevant. Like it doesn't matter. And when people have no idea of Boston and its history and its contributions and or that it's a continuing thing that's going on for almost 400 years, they pretty much dismiss us. And that's something that I just can't, I can't rock with. And that's why culture is so important. If I explain to you that the first like museums of, you know, or like all these firsts in black history started in Boston and Massachusetts and then out in New England, then you can't dismiss it. And it all starts with like the record and it all starts with history and it all starts with culture. Like somebody came to visit Boston and have an interview me and was talk talking all these things. I explained to them, I was like, what you need to understand about Boston is that Whereas the 13th Amendment comes down and, you know, slavery is supposedly abolished, even though it's not everywhere because everybody doesn't know because the story didn't get to them. Mm -hmm. Boston, Black folks had been freed 82 years ahead of time because they spent 10 years fighting for their freedom, starting with the Freedom Petition, you know, in 1773, you know, Paul Cuff, all his work, uh, 
uh, Elizabeth Freeman uh, suing uh, for her freedom, Quark Walker suing for his freedom, them both winning in court, petitioning the Massachusetts uh, legislature for years, um, and then them winning their cases and then suing for reparations. Mm. Like, this mm. should be something that everybody knows, like, nationally. But you know what? I think that I think that it's also a situation where culture translates better than almost education. Like the the fact the things that we learn in pop culture yeah. almost resonate and connect with us more. Like I, I remember when the new edition of the movie came out, there were people talking about they're from Boston. I thought they were from New York. That blew but, my mind. But you okay, so I'm not you it's not <laughs> like I'm I just saw that in a vacuum. You saw this yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah. It blew my mind. That's I, I that's why I like if you notice, I was I was doing almost recaps of every mm-hmm. episode. And as I was live tweeting them and saying, actually, that didn't happen in that way. Actually, the timeline is different. And then I would do Instagram posts where I would break down things more. And then I would talk about what didn't make it and what I would like to see a film that really delved deeper into certain things, certain aspects. But yeah, man, um, that drove me insane because it's like you, but I both, we understand when you have a black music department, the MCA, and you're based in Los Angeles, you don't want to have new edition running up and down the court with Larry Bird and, and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish when you can get Magic Johnson Mm -hmm. and you can get James Worthy and you can get, you know, insert other brown liquor here you know like w- whether we're talking kareem byron scott wh- whoever you know ac green you know but like with the jerry curls but if i had a choice between ac green and kevin McHale, i'm gonna pick kevin McHale. i'm gonna pick kevin McHale. but the whole thing is that when you have the black music department and you're based in la and you want to sell these black dudes to the to black audiences the last thing you're thinking of is boston in 1985, even though that put them up against the wall, because when they showed back up home after the Celtics lost to the Lakers in 85, y'all just did a video with the Lakers? That, yeah, because that was around the time when people started actually, because, you know, for a while, there was a, a, a split between Celtics fans. Like, some, of, some yeah. of the Celtics fans were on board and they supported the Celtics. Yeah. And then some of the fans was like, nah, because uh, Magic Johnson tells a story about, yeah. about people coming up to him talking about, yo, man, make sure you kick them behind when, when yeah. he's in the Boston airport, whereas black people came up to him and told him, was like, yo, make sure you kick them behind tonight. And he's yeah, like, wait a minute, you, you're, from, you're from Boston, right? They're like, yeah, but we don't rock with the Celtics like that. Yeah, but what Magic also, what they also didn't do is they also didn't talk to any brown people from Boston in that entire documentary to give a counter argument. So that just goes to show you that we don't exist to them. Like I watched that entire doc. I watched that entire. Uh, I was like, dude, you couldn't have found Mike Bivens. You couldn't but found no, Mike. That, but that was that was a true sentiment, though. Yeah, you, but there was, was no it, other. It wasn't the only sentiment. You're yeah, right. You're there right. was no alt. There was no. They did not spend time going into Boston and saying, "Let's talk to actual Bostonians and black folks from Massachusetts." who actually were Celtics fans and get their take because it wasn't important to them because they got what they wanted. If you ask me, 
it would have been different. Yes, absolutely. There were black folks in Boston that weren't pulling for the Celtics because they didn't like the way that we were being marketed. They didn't like the way that when they open up the Boston Herald, sometimes when the Celtics lost, you see the black player in the, in the paper. But if the Celtics won, all of a sudden it's one of the white guys. Um, that's something we saw firsthand. So and we're we carrying the memory of Bill Russell, too. Yeah. yeah of how they treated so, Bill. But here's the thing, too. Like, there's two sides to it. Bill Russell moves into a almost all-white area, integrates that area. There's high resistance. At the same time, Bill Russell had slaves right down the street. He spent plenty of time in Roxbury. He spent mm -hmm. a good amount of time in Dorchester, enjoyed his time there. And even after he retired, he was still involved with the community. Sat Sanders in, invested in the community, had Satches. Sam Jones lived in Roxbury with, San, with, with Satch, you know? That's how they developed so many players. That's how they developed develop so much talent, including um, uh, Jalen Rose's father, mm. you know, uh, Willis Bennett. You know, uh, they uh, they involved. They were involved in the community. So when you hear Bill Russell telling the stories about how he faced uh, racist uh, fans in a half-empty garden. People take that and run with it, not realizing the fact that the matter is that basketball wasn't that important to Boston back in those days because they had to place for the Bruins and they had to do extra things to, to even get the 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 uh, the garden half full for selfish games in the 60s before there was a TV contract. Right. And if you don't know all that, you just take this and run with it. So the fact of the matter is that, like, there's a more nuanced story there. But when we talk about culture in Boston, we never get the nuance. We never get the different sides because nobody thinks to ask anybody or dig deep because it's not important enough to them. Whereas to me, I'm like, hey, I like I think it's important to get the context and the facts of the matter straight before you just run. Because that's why when I hop on, that's what that's how I even ended up writing the um that piece for uh, Boston magazine, because. I was fighting back against all these people online that were not even trying to hear what I was saying about what it's like to be a black Bostonian. They just wanted the, they wanted the jokes. They wanted to run ragged with the jokes and the memes and they didn't care about our feelings because it was a, to them, it wasn't even friendly fire. It was just fire. So that's how that, that's how I ended up writing that piece about, you know, you want to talk about racism in Boston. Won't you ask a black Bostonian? Because I can tell you, way better than anybody else. All you gotta do is shut up and listen because you're talking about things you don't know about. This is my life. Wow, Dart. I mean, the the Boston Magazine piece alone is something that we could spend a lot of time on. And I really appreciate that history lesson, especially around the nature of sports and the representation of Boston in the larger context. Going back to that piece though, thinking about the the objectivity for someone to think that they cannot speak to a black Bostonian and then wonder about what that experience is like. As we're looking at black and brown communities that are experiencing gentrification in the same communities that have, you know, statues of the 54th Regiment and Phyllis Hyman, how are yeah. we thinking about opportunities for us to also still keep places in these communities? You talked about Columbus Ave, you talked about Mass Ave a little bit. I'm thinking about Wally's and I'm thinking about all the ways in which, um, you know, I didn't know that folks were leaving Harlem and coming to Boston of all places to set up shop and yeah. really grow, and grow their music and grow their careers. How And as a documentarian, uh, as a historian, 
How do we share those stories forward amid all the changing perceptions and the changing spaces in our city? Well, I think one of the big issues is that like when you see a city or you're in Boston, you have this one idea of what it is and it's never opened up to like what actually occurred and what happened and why these things are the way they are. Like one thing I've always wanted to do is I would go do speaking engagements and show up at friends on classes at um, Berkeley College of Music. And I'll explain to them, I was like, the reason Berkeley College of Music is here started out of Schillinger House, but it's, a, it's, it's built on jazz. And the reason it's located here is because this is where all the best jazz musicians uh, were. Plus, it was a stretch of all these wonderful jazz clubs with full liquor licenses, full entertainment licenses, and kitchens. So now we're talking about not only entertainment, but we're talking about economic power. Because if you have a stretch of Mass Ave, Columbus Ave, and all these other streets that, that are lying alongside it, um, Tremont, then what we're talking about is these places are bringing in money. People are leaving where they're from to come here. People are recording albums here. Um, and the thing is that if that's the case, these places are open pretty much all night. Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, got a reputation for being somebody who was always on, always on, could never turn it off. He, he, he did show after show after show after show after show. And then when he got home, everybody came to his house. He'd show a movie because he had his own movie theater. And they were like, what? Why do you run, run like this, like your batteries like that? Because as a child, at five, six, seven years old, he was running up and down the street at all these different clubs, mother's lunch, you know, uh, going across the street to, uh, to other places, doing all this stuff, playing at all the different clubs all, of, all along the stretch I'm talking about as a young child with the um, Will Maston trio, with his dad and Will Maston, his uncle Will Maston. Um, but like, the point I'm making is that when you don't realize that when you walk down the street, that all these places, that all the, that all these that all these spots used to be these legendary clubs or these legendary venues or this rooming house or I found old issues of the Green Book, the uh, the Motorist Green Book, and I would go to Boston and I would see the addresses and realize, wait, all these are in my neighborhood, and I I did a Instagram post where I went taking pictures of these places and what they used to be, and who used to live there. And I could see the names of the person who used to, um, when you came to Boston and you were looking for like respite, you know, or like a place to stay, you saw the person's name that you'd be talking to when you stopped through. And if you are not aware of any of this and you just live in a city, to you, that space is whatever you make it. It's never brown. It's never black. That history is completely lost. So one of the things I used to do when I went to Berkeley was, I mean, uh, I would say that what needs to happen is either the school or they need, need to be a bunch of schools, Northeastern, whatever, get together and have a thing where they make it a point where they put plaques and signs on each of these historic spots so that you can't just walk by it and, and just like have no mind that that was mother's lunch on that corner. And these legendary musicians used to stay here, but now I walk by there and it's just like people just living there not even realizing, like, you know that that is jazz and American music and cultural history. 
and you just live there and you don't have any idea what that is. Like this, this is sacred ground, you know, that you're on. And I feel like that's the case with like a lot of South End and Lower Roxbury, but there were just so many historical sites that back in the eighties, when they decided that, all right, we have to go around and we have to uh, mark all these places. There were so many sites of historical um, importance that they just took a took the entire neighborhood and said, this neighborhood is of historical value. And I was like, that was kind of a cop out because it made it necessary for me to say, actually, we are walking, you you walk by the old NAACP building every day and there's no sign telling you that's the NAACP building. Yeah. Most of the people that lived in the neighborhood when it was active don't live there anymore or died or moved moved away. And I made it a point to be like, that's the NAACP building and pull up old pictures when, when it was firebombed um, by white folks in 1976 when the um when the busing uh, ruling came down or mm. you know when in the in the late 60s when everybody organized out of there where Martin and Coretta used to go down there um when like Martin I mean when Malcolm X used to stop by the office like that site needs to be acknowledged you know and it's just a, like a converted office building that nobody uses on the corner on Mass Ave in front of the gas station now. Drives me insane. But the yeah, reason why- I remember as kids that was open. Like it was, yeah. ki as, as kids, we would go by there and it had a great big NAACP sign on it. Yes, a big, a black- NAACP I've been in there in that office when it was NAACP. Yeah, but like, so it's hard to try to be like, all right, how are we gonna carve out space here and, and make a place for us when we've been erased? You know, mm. and and like that's one of the things you have to start with. It's like because the idea is that, oh, we're making a place for you guys. You know, we're going to include you. No, we've always been here. You're doing this isn't an, a matter of doing us a favor and including us. This is a matter of setting the record straight and doing what should have been done. You know, we've earned this space. We've always had it. You know that you can't. One of the things that I wanted to do when I started doing things about like talking about space and representation is not beg for inclusion. I've been here. I don't have to ask to be included in the conversations being a Bostonian. I'm a Bostonian. You know, I'm not going to come and try to appeal to your to your higher senses. I don't have to do anything. I've been here. You're not going to leave me out of the conversation is what what I'm saying. Because in many cases, you were there before the person that you're having a conversation with. Exactly. So why should I? And, and, and the thing is that the idea of what a Bostonian is has been like controlled by the media to the point where people have this idea that this is all a Bostonian can be. That's why the when you look, look at my Twitter profile, my Twitter profile is pretty much one word, Bostonian, because I'm fighting back against the idea that the a Bostonian needs to have the Pactacad Havid Yad accent when I know for a fact that somebody who grew up in this city and you know went to Boston public schools my entire life, that's not the reality of the situation of the, our existence. And you're pretty much saying that if it's not this, then it's not authentic Bostonian. And I dare you to tell me I'm not an authentic Bostonian. I dare you. There. 
try it, please. And this and this response is is hundred percent a Bostonian response. I don't shy from anything, man. It's and that is something that I learned from being a kid grown growing up in South End Lower Roxbury, raised by Roxbury kids, uh, running around through uh, you know with my cousins in Dorchester. They instilled all that in me because they knew that if you're going to survive in this city, and you're going, you can't shy away from anything, and you're gonna have to speak up for yourself. Otherwise, it'll just eat you whole. I, I, it's it's incredible to hear you talk about the whole the the importance of kind of that counter storytelling. That's really a, a, a the work that we're doing with, in cultural representation at King Boston is really rooted in that. And um, by extension, that's what we're doing with with our festival is coming up in 2022. So we're going to be looking forward to kind of being to pushing back against that because you're right. There is this prevailing thought process that Boston is this one thing. You know, I know all three of us at one point or another, when you've been out of town and you tell somebody you're from Boston, they're like, oh, my gosh, there's black people up there. Yes, there's black people up there. We got one of the richest black, you know, and rich in 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 just the, all the wonderful things that are involved with it in terms of a black community that there is in, in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think that that going back to the whole concept of culture and, and pop culture and just, you know, people not seeing us. You know what I mean? Like it's it's been something that I've always seen since I was since I was young. But you know, one of the things that that with you, Dart, um, you know, you've finally, finally written your first book. Yeah. And the reason I'm saying finally, because I've known Dart for a very long time, and I'm one of the chorus of people who's been telling him to write. Um, to write his own book. So tell us about the journey of, of you getting that first, uh, your first book published. Tell us about, and tell us about the book. All right. So the book uh, was released in October, 2019. It's called uh, Best Damn Hip Hop Writing, The Book of Dirt. Uh, the book originally uh, was being made between 2012 and 2013. Um, the original contract, I had the book between 2012 and 2013. I finished the book. I edited 60 pieces that I did on my old blog, Poisonous Paragraphs, which ran from 2007 to 2010. I didn't like the book after it was done. I was like, I can write better than this. Why am I rehashing old stuff from when I, when I was just trying to write? And, you know, I was writing on limited time because I was trying to do stuff when my brother, before he came back from work and use his laptop, I mean, use his desktop as opposed to my laptop that I ran into the ground. I was like, I don't like this book. And so I turned it down and I was like, no, I'm not putting this out. So then I went back and I started working again. And around 2018, I got contacted by the same person that um, like five years later and he said, it's time. So I started getting together pieces that I'd written for other outlets Mm -hmm. and they were, you know, collected into what is now you know the book of dark which was released in um 2019 and the response i didn't expect uh i didn't expect it to sell out because what they do is they have micro orders in the independent book so they only order a certain amount but that first micro order sold out then the second micro order sold out a third micro order sold out so when you when you get micro orders to sell out you you make bigger micro orders. 
So they made a bigger order. That one sold out immediately. They made an even bigger order. That one sold out immediately. So they're like, all right, we get it. So then they just started ordering more. And then it took longer to sell out. But they kept selling out to the point where the, for the first time, I'd never seen this before in my life. By the time we got to holiday season 2019 leading into 2020, they removed the one click off of Amazon. Oh, and they, was one click, you mean? Yeah, they removed it. And they led people to, because they had to buy, they had to, re, they had to reprint more. They were mm-hmm. like, buy it from these other outlets before we have enough to allow you to, to pre-order it for like for Prime and ship it out immediately. Because we are not going to have enough to meet your demand. Wow. And that was the first time I'd ever seen that happen. And it happened to my book. And, you know, the book's done well over the, like the last two years. But the thing is that I signed a deal with a major pub- with a major publisher, um, Penguin Random House. And I have a book coming out in April, uh, April 2022. Uh, Instead, We Became Evil, a true story of um, survival and perseverance about a man named Sleeman, who is a, um, a Palestinian refugee from Lebanon who moved to Denmark. Hmm. The stateless Palestinian who experienced any type of racism, xenophobia, um, prejudice as a child with immigrant parents. And he moved into this housing development full of um, Arab immigrants. This is directly across a river from another development of Arab immigrants who beef with each other. And this large swap, this large, uh, unique uh, strain of gang culture emerged in Denmark. In Denmark, they have um, biker gangs and also like drug gangs and stuff like that. And so this gang of, of Arab immigrants, gangs of Arab immigrants become to, to rise to, to protect themselves from these outward gangs and also uh, being harassed by the police. So, and then he becomes, an, uh, he becomes a rapper, uh, an international famous rapper, but he starts out as like a, 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 a gang leader and a gang member who they've written about in European papers since he was a teenager. And so like, I took on that story, you know, and that, and, and that book has been uh, quite an undertaking because I'm telling the story of somebody who experienced similar things to first wave immigrant kids, you know, they grew up in the inner city here, but it's also telling a story of like a Palestinian refugee through the lens of being a, a mu- musician. Whereas that kind of book doesn't really exist, you know? And I related to that story being a black Bostonian where I always have to fight and always have to convince somebody that this story of being a black Bostonian or a Latino Bostonian has weight and people will actually care, you know, without putting it into a different context. Because again, like, if you're going to sell the idea of being a brown Bostonian, you always have to pepper it with something else. When LeBron James and Tom Warner and Maverick Carter told the mm-hmm. story of black Bostonian family for survivor's remorse, they had to take them out of Boston the first episode and take them to Atlanta. Because they were like, no one's going to care about black people in Boston unless we take these black people, make them fishes out of water 
in Atlanta where black mm. people thrive, mm. you know? And when they tried mm. to sell the show and try to get people to come on the show and, and, and do guest appearances, they said the show is produced by LeBron James and Maverick Carter and set in Atlanta. They didn't tell you it was about a black Bostonian family because they wanted you to actually care about it and actually be interested. And that just goes to show you how we're viewed and how I made it a point that I had to fight against that and change our perception. Wow. Amid these changing perceptions, Dar, excited to hear about your book forthcoming in April 2022. Uh, reminding all listeners to make sure to shop local. Shout out to Frugal Bookstore, Nubian Square. Hopefully uh, folks can get out there uh, to purchase the book. Uh, also curious, you know, thinking about Survivor's Remorse and thinking about ownership and thinking about these networks as as a journalist, any thoughts on how uh, with the consolidation of media and with a lot of the counter narratives that we've spoken about over the, the course of this hour, how folks can really um, get involved in the debate and make sure that we're we're making the representation and making the voices heard that really are needed to be the documentarians and the soothsayers of of our shared history. Uh, for one thing, um it's important to realize that our stories aren't going to be told if we allow the people who typically tell those stories to do it because they're never going to see the value in what we do. So we're going to have to be the people that push, you know, uh, to get our stories told. Uh, I've been trying to make uh, either a book, documentary, uh, animated feature, something about the Boston Funk All-Stars to tell their contributions to Black music and pop music going forward. Now, a lot of things wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for uh, Michael Johnson, Maurice Starr, Arthur Baker, you know, um, uh, several other guys, Tony Rose, somebody, uh, Prince Charles Alexander, that man has been involved in almost everything shaken from from bad boy to French hip hop that blew up like uh, to, to funk. He, he, he has been a mentor to so many different people. And like those, the main theme is that we have to make sure that we show up and tell our story. Otherwise, no one else is going to do it for us. And it just gets to the point where you just keep showing up and doing the work to the point where you almost shame people into saying, all right, I'm going to have to do something about this. I'm going to have to like maybe lend my, you know, throw my hat into the ring now because you have a movement moving and it's like, you can't deny it when people respond to it. Like this, this thing that's happening with a lot of like music and in, in the Boston scene now, you know, we had years and years and years and years of progress. And now it's at a point where it's like, all right, now it's completely undeniable. If everybody's clamoring for it, you hear it everywhere. You can't just pretend it doesn't exist. And I have that same thought process when it comes to um, making sure that our voices are heard in regards to representation in any medium. If you keep showing up, you keep being loud, you keep being demonstrative, and you stay consistent in your message and what you're doing, you can't be ignored. It's, it just, it can't happen. But the thing is, you have to do all these things first. We have to, because if you get discouraged and quit, then you're playing into what they would love for you to do. And that's how we end up back at square one. 
and we can't go back. We can't. So do you do you envision, and with all the changes, like you know, we have had an ex, a historic uh, mayor's race. Uh, we now have a a black chief of economic development here, who mm-hmm. who before he be, got into that role was a very uh, very vocal critic of some of the the choices that were being made in the city. Yeah. And, uh, are what is your view of the future in terms of uh, of Black Boston or Boston in, in the future? And and where where do you feel like culture will be in that in that conversation well to me i you you just hit the hit the nail on the head he was constantly making a point to outline where the failures were where uh things fell through the cracks things that were unaddressed and he did that consistently for years and now look at what happened with him uh i relate that to like me being on twitter talking about inconsistencies with reporting different spaces and um culture and that ended up with me being the go-to person to fact check people's books and television shows and series now you know and that's what we need to continue do- doing in boston um you can't be complacent we can't just think that okay this is how things are in this city you know it's a racist city they won't let us in um we're underrepresented that means show up more Mm. That means be Tell loud. Them. You can you can't deny something that exists. If we're like, look, we are not getting the things we need or the things we deserve in certain parts of the city. We're underserved. We're underfunded. Show the hell up. Make noise. Make it known. And at some point. It can't be denied. Mm-hmm. That's how progress is made anywhere. That's how progress is made in America. It's slower than we'd like for it to be. That's for damn sure. But we have to do it anyway, because what's our recourse? What's the alternative? Be quiet and complain that nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. Or fight for it every day with every breath. Ooh. That's what I'm choosing. But then again, I'm from Boston. That's what I I don't have a I don't have a choice in the matter. You know, we're we're Reggie. Go ahead, go ahead. You you look like you had something to say. You get I mean, out. I was just about to ask what your commitment to good trouble was for the end of the year. But I think you know, I'd love to hear anything else, Dart, um, outside of what you just said. But that was powerful. If you I mean, want to hear more of what Dart's thinking, trust me, this Twitter follow is a, one of your best follows. You can hear him, him and I argue on Twitter. <laughs> uh, what, what, what were you thinking, Dart? What else do you have on your mind there, my friend? You were about to say something. Oh, uh, no. It's just um, after years and years and years of me, like, basically, like, my biggest motivation to do anything was had involved me, you know, talking about Boston. Uh, I was... People know me from OK Player, the, the OK Player message boards. I did, I was a stalker for years, you know. I was just on that site for years, and I didn't think to get, a, a, you know, my own um, account until somebody was slandering Boston. And that's what made me actually get an account. 
uh, I was on all hip hop forever. And the thing that, you know, made me actually actively post on there was people were messing up the facts about Boston rap. You know, they, they were just going in on Benzino and not actually talking about, you know, what Boston contributed. And so basically everything has to do with me starting out with trying to set the record straight about Boston, Black Latino Boston, uh, and the perception here. And it bled to everything else. I mean, I have a love of sports. You know, I'm a fan of the Celtics, but I know how they're perceived nationwide and by other fandoms, you know. But I have to let you know that your idea of what they are and mine aren't the same because I'm from here and I've lived a different experience. I've lived this experience. And so again, that's been my motivate, that's been my motivation, whether it's in any form of culture. You know, we bring our lens, we bring our experiences, and we we use that to, you know, pepper our um our views, our viewpoints. And I'm just glad that I was born and raised in Boston. I think that might be our, our title for the episode, Born and Raised in Boston. I'm going to see if I can get a, get a sample clear to Born and Raised in Compton and just switch the word out. Born and Raised in Compton. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, we've had a great time talking with you today, man. I feel like this this warrants a part two so we can kind of dig in some of the some of the, the weeds of some of the conversations that we kind of grazed over, like, you know, the the whole history with New Edition. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we had, we had touched like there's so many people like I feel like we could have an episode where we play did you know he was from Boston or did you know she was from Boston oh like, yeah. there's so so many people that that folks don't associate with the every city time, every time um I do tours of the neighborhood in different areas for people who like have just come to Boston and their families are kind of scared that they moved to the Mississippi of the east or what have you and I'm like great um and like one of the things I do is like as I'm walking, I'm like, here's like the issue with the perception of Boston. Um, name three black Bostonians. Name three black people from Massachusetts. Name three Latino people from Massachusetts. And a lot of times they can't do it. And so I start running off a list and I keep going and keep going. And they're just like, what? Her? Him? Really? And it's sad because the only reason we know is because we're from here. And that's why. I was born with so much of this frustration because when you grow up knowing all this culture and knowing all these contributions and all these great things that, you know, have been done in your city and your people contributed to and how they changed culture forever and the general public has no clue, it's sad. It's disappointing. And because, you know, if people knew, it would be so empowering for so many other people and also would change their perception forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dart, last but not least, how can folks stay in touch with you outside of Twitter, Instagram, uh, and all the ways in which you show up in the community? Oh, boy. Um, Twitter is Dart underscore Adams. Instagram, Dart underscore Adams. Um, I have a YouTube account, uh, Producers I Know, where I recorded a whole bunch of um, live performances and events in Boston and Massachusetts over the last 10 years. Um, hundreds of shows, hundreds of events that, that, that I've recorded. I think that that's a, a great record. So if you have an idea of what Boston is, when you see all these brown folks 
you know, existing. <laughs> it kind of flies counter to your idea of what Massachusetts is. Um, so yeah, and um, that's like one of the places you can find me other than the regular Twitter and Instagram. Dart is usually on, on Twitter causing all types of hell and, you know, pissing famous people off on a regular and basis. Sometimes they need it. They need it. They need to be told about themselves. Well, listen, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming to have this conversation and we will have a part two conversation with you because we definitely, we didn't even grace kind of where the space where you and I connected, which oh, is that love, the love of hip hop. And, and all the, you know, and I didn't even get a chance to tell the story about I trapped Dart in the office one day and just tortured him with trap music song after song. After song. So we will save that for part two of our conversation, our next episode or a f future episode of Good Trouble. So uh, Dart, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, my name is Gregory Ball and my co-host, Reggie Williams. Yes. And we're glad to be here. Yes. We appreciate you all. And hopefully you will be causing some good trouble in your community because that's what we need in order to make the world a better place. We will see you next time on good trouble podcast.